Let us give attention to the reading of the word from the book of Philippians. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship God, by, worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I have deeply enjoyed our time so far in the book of Philippians. If those of you who, are, who have been with us for the last few weeks, if you've been tracking with us, you may have noticed a potential problem in our reading this morning, which is we've skipped over the second half of Philippians 2, and that will be, the reasoning for that will become apparent when we get to Philippians 4. If we don't get to Philippians 4, by the time that I take a little bit of a break for Lucy's arrival, my, my daughter Lucy, who is in utero, uh, then that's okay, but my desire is to fold the second half of Philippians 2 into the second half, excuse me, the first half of Philippians 4. Not because I think Paul wrote his letter out of order, but because thematically they're so clear, there's such a clear link that I wanted to present them at the same time as a, um, a demonstration of what it means to apply these things in the church. 
And by that, I mean not how we apply these teachings to our own hearts, but rather as we apply them to our hearts, they begin to affect how we shape and relate to one another and how we consider to lay our lives down. So I thought it would be helpful to reserve this second half of Philippians 2 to the future when we again look at Paul's instructions for certain people within the church, how they're supposed to relate and to behave with one another. So I wanted to, to take just a minute to review where we've been at in our series. At the beginning of the series in Philippians, we see Paul bearing his heart in his letter as a wise and kind and gracious father. Paul, being the spiritual father of these Philippian saints, these Philippian Christians, expresses his love. And he doesn't withhold words of affirmation, words of encouragement from his spiritual children. He, he bestows grace upon them by letting them know how much they mean to him, to his soul. And he uses these words describing the Philippians as his joy and that he himself is working for their joy. We looked at how Paul was demonstrating for the Philippians. He was saying what the working out of his suffering and persecution has done for the sake of the church. We, we remember we focused on that verse. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened through my imprisonment has actually worked out for the advancement of the gospel. And he's wanting them to gain the spiritual perspective. And by spiritual, I don't mean otherworldly. I mean the spiritual perspective, that is to say the, the perspective of the Holy Spirit that as he's working out Paul's suffering on the behalf of the Philippian saints and the saints throughout the Mediterranean, that as he was suffering, God was producing through Paul's suffering a great love for Jesus Christ. We saw how in the midst of Paul's refusal to renounce the, the claims of Jesus Christ as Lord, that Paul was unwilling to trade temporary pleasure, temporary safety for the eternal gain of Jesus Christ. And we saw in that perseverance two great things, that Jesus Christ is precious to Paul. He is better than gold because he's not willing to trade up Jesus Christ for personal freedom and safety. And then we also saw that Jesus Christ is powerful. It is Jesus Christ who is causing Paul to be able to persevere. And so Paul is saying to these Philippians, through my experience, the believers around me are much more bold. Why? Because they see the worth of Christ and they see the power of Christ. These two great expressions of perseverance in the midst of persecution. And so then Paul begins to elevate his hearers up to the conflict that the apostles are engaged in. He is expressing to them, though you're not an apostle, you are engaged in the very same conflict that we ourselves are engaged in. If I'm persecuted for Christ, and if you're persecuted for Christ, because there is one Christ, we are brothers. And so Paul is bestowing the grace of belonging on his hearers, and he's elevating their vision to understand that his suffering is having an intended effect. And then he moves from his suffering to the suffering of Jesus Christ, as we saw last week. 
he explores, Paul by the Spirit explores the mind of Jesus Christ saying to the Philippians, you are supposed to think in this way. So our two aims in this series, really it's one aim, but you can, you can count it in two ways, is first to see how Paul expresses his love for the Philippians. There is a love that is supposed to exist in this church. And so he expresses the love, but in the way that he does it, he in, it necessarily requires him to explain the way he thinks. So the affection that Paul has is shaped by and informed by the thinking that he has for these Philippians. And he says, it's not actually important for you to imitate me if, it, if I were not also imitating Christ. And therefore, he moves straight to Jesus Christ. And he demonstrates how Jesus Christ considered it worthy to come and to die because Jesus Christ himself looked forward and saw the reward that his father was going to bestow upon him. And what an interesting thing. It's almost scandalous to think about, but the New Testament does not just present the reward of Jesus Christ as being the Father's approval or the Father's uh, granting of grace to him, but also Jesus Christ considers the saints themselves as his inheritance. That's what Paul is praying for in the Ephesian letter, his glorious inheritance in the saints. I read that phrase to say that not only did Jesus Christ want the joy of his father's delight and approval as he willingly obeyed the father's command to offer up his life, but also he, reckon, he recognized the precious bride that he was purchasing and that because of that reward, he was willing to endure the cross and death itself. So this is where we've been in the Philippian letter. We've, we've been exploring how Paul bears his heart and shows how to think. And that is exactly what continues on in this chapter, in chapter 3. I want to look first at Paul's warnings in this passage of rejecting or renouncing or discarding self-righteousness. All of the dangers that attend to self-righteousness, and the refusal to rest upon it and to throw it away. I want to look here at this godly future perspective that Paul then advocates or teaches his readers and hearers to, to uh, adopt. And then finally, I want to look at what Paul gives as a very clear command to imitate those who are living in godly ways. We're going to see one of the great benefits of being in the church is to have many wonderful examples of this. Paul here reminds his readers of the necessity to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. The reason I just reviewed was because of this verse. I actually, in thinking about this verse, I thought, what would be the most appropriate way to obey the spirit of this verse? And it is this, it is necessary in the Christian walk for us to rejoice and to be told to rejoice. Rejoicing in the Lord, therefore, is a habit of Christians, a habit that has to be developed. If you've ever tried to stop doing something or start doing something, the most important thing is not the volume, 
at which you do that thing, but rather the consistency. If you're trying to establish a discipline of exercise, what matters more than how much you bench is how often you bench. Yes and amen, fellow, fellow exercise buddies. What matters more is the consistency. And so he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. This is a spiritual discipline. And by discipline, I mean practice. It's something that takes time. And we ought to use the word of God to help inform the way in which we rejoice. Christians should routinely call to mind the blessings that they've been given in God and Christ. And not only the blessings in a spiritual sense, but also the blessings in a material sense. I want you to look around the room at this point. You are surrounded, many of you are not looking, look around the room at this point. You are surrounded by a group of people who are not seeking to murder you, who are, who are transformed by the gospel, the majority of them are transformed by the gospel and eagerly desire your good. That is a wonderful privilege and blessing in Jesus Christ. We live in a building currently as our church. We live in a building with air conditioning. The fact that anyone complains in the midst of air conditioning is a it's a moral tra- tragedy. It's a more it's a moral deficiency and so he tells them finally my brothers rejoice in the Lord. It is a spiritual habit that we must cultivate. It takes effort And we should use the word of God to create within ourselves the perspective by which we give thanks for what we have. Most of us have an okay job, enough food, some friends, and aren't currently dying of any catastrophic diseases or pestilence or famine. We have it better than 99% of all the people who've ever lived on this planet. And not only that, we have the spiritual privileges of knowing Jesus Christ, of communion with the Holy Spirit, of adoption with the Father, of knowing that though we were wretched sinners, God has had compassion on us and we have been transformed by the gospel. The greatest privilege in the gospel is not escape from hell, it is knowing Christ. The positive blessing of knowing Christ. So we ought to give thanks, we ought to express thanks, and we ought to be working for joy. So, knowing the spiritual dangers which attend to these Philippians, which are extremely close to them in their cultural context, Paul warns the Philippians about the dangers of self-righteousness and adhering to the works of the law. Paul warns his readers against those who seek to destroy their faith and to divert them from the pure adherence to Jesus Christ. Verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil workers. Evildoers can be translated evil workers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In the original, it's not just those who mutilate the flesh, it's the mutilation. Those who, it's a term of disparagement. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Jesus, when he was talking with the woman at the well, he said the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. He's settling a theological debate. She says, the Jews worship in Jerusalem. We Samaritans worship here on this mountain. Which is it? 
And Jesus says, there's a time coming where you're not going to worship in Jerusalem. You're not going to worship in Samaria. For the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. And Paul says in this verse, we're the true Jews. Look out for those who are dogs and who mutilate the flesh. The Judaizers who teach the necessity of the adherence of the adherence of the law as the basis for fellowship with God have no share in God at all. That is what Paul is doing by calling them dogs. That is a very offensive term. And Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is warning these precious saints for whom Christ died to watch out for people who want to nip at their spiritual heels and devour them and murder them theologically and spiritually. The Judaizers taught that Christ Jesus was not enough to become reconciled with God. They lied about the gospel and therefore called God a liar. These are evildoers in that they are sowing discord among the saints. If you were here during our time in the book of Galatians, you may remember that Paul, because of Peter's hypocrisy, had to publicly rebuke Peter, saying to Peter publicly in Jerusalem that how are you who live like a Gentile running away from the Gentiles? That is to say, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, who believe that his blood is sufficient for the atonement, how are you, Peter, starting to withhold yourselves who, from those who aren't ethnically Jewish or keeping the traditions of the law? And Paul accuses Peter of not living in step with the gospel. Peter's great sin was expressed on a horizontal level. He started withholding himself from non-Jewish people. And he started, although he was claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to share in his sufferings by participating in the Lord's Supper, Peter started withholding himself from those who were not ethnically Jewish. And so Paul rebukes him and calls him, imputes lying to Peter. He says, you are lying about the gospel. Why is this? Because the Judaizers were saying that the Gentiles, those who are not ethnically Jewish, must come into God's people by receiving circumcision and by keeping the law. Now we know from the rest of the New Testament that the moral rules of the law are good for Christians to adhere to. However, The cultural prohibitions, the cultural provisions, the code of ordinances within the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And even those things which are still binding on Christians are not the basis of our reconciliation to God and therefore cannot be the basis of our reconciliation with other men and women. We are brothers and sisters based upon Jesus Christ, not based upon our sanctification. This is what Paul says. We no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. I don't look around in my world as a Christian and say, well, these people are my tribe and those people aren't my tribe if both of those categories are redeemed Christians. We're not allowed to choose tribes among redeemed Christians. 
They are our tribe because they're Christ's tribe. He bought them with his blood. And so Paul is calling them evil workers because they are doing evil things in the church. They're sowing discord. They're trying to break up the wonderful fellowship in the church that was purchased with Christ's blood. Paul's insistence here of being the true circumcision is a radical rejection of the possibility of mixing self-righteousness with Christianity. He says that those who consider themselves the circumcision, that's a term for the Jews, they are not the circumcision at all. Paul says the true circumcision are those who have been circumcised inwardly. In Colossians 2, he says that the circumcision was made in their hearts. It was made by Christ. And just so you are aware, you cannot circumcise your heart yourself. It is impossible for your heart to be cut open. Now, clearly, I'm speaking spiritually or metaphorically. This is what Paul is saying, that there has been a circumcision performed in the hearts of saints, and that is not a physical work. The real issue is not the, the cutting which takes place in the body, it's the cutting which needs to take place in the soul. This is the great promise of the new covenant. God promised his people, I will cut out your heart of stone and I will put within you a heart of flesh and then I will write my law on your heart. The Judaizers are teaching, no, that promise is a lie. Jesus' blood is not enough. You need to adhere to the works of the law and then you can come in to the community of faith. And Paul is saying, these are the evil workers. Watch out for those who advocate the mutilating of the flesh, who take their stand on the mutilating of the flesh. Paul then demolishes these arguments of the Judaizers by boasting for the sake of effect in his former pedigree. When he does this in in the letter to Corinthians, he says, bear with me in a little foolishness. I'm talking like an insane person. And then he goes on to list his credentials. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. He's, He's essentially providing his heart, his experience of coming to Jesus Christ, his renouncing of his former privileges as an example. He's saying, you guys, you, you though who keep the law, you think you have confidence in the flesh? I've got a whole lot more reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. You see, the commandment to be circumcised was supposed to be obeyed on the eighth day. And here are a bunch of people who've started messing with the gospel, and they're teaching that Those who are Gentiles need to be circumcised to come to Christ or to have fellowship with God. And Paul then says, you've been circumcised too late. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. It's an interesting boast. Benjamin was a very small tribe, but he did a number of valiant things. One of the smallest tribes with one of the most amazing results if you read the Old Testament history. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. Remember, this is the word of God which I hold to be, we hold to be inerrant. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. Now, does that mean perfection? I don't 
think it means perfection. The reason why is because we've distorted what it means to keep the law. When God, when, when establishing the law, God provided for a means of repentance ceremonially in the law. Someone had to bring a sin offering or a guilt offering or a peace offering. Paul is saying, I've kept the law really well, blamelessly. It doesn't mean that he's never transgressed. It means that he's used the remedy of repair that was made as a provision. He was blameless in righteousness under the law. At this moment, none of these things Paul considers to be of any worth at all. His ethnic privilege, who he was as a Jew, being a recipient of the promises given through Abraham, his circumcision, his perfect moral adherence to the spirit of the law, none of that was worth anything in the way that Paul counted his righteousness. Further, these things, as Paul says, are actually things to be actively discarded, to be removed quickly. We were in the building yesterday, and that building is filled with things to be discarded quickly. You should always, as Andy said in the fellowship or in the Sunday school hour, you should always clean your house when you leave it. These people didn't have the capacity to clean this building, and the first job of ours is to clean it, to throw away things that need to be removed. Look at what Paul says in verse 7 and 8. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Paul had privileges in the, in the religious system of the Jews which was not at all the perfect law which God gave. They had twisted the law into being a form of righteousness. And he takes all of his credentials in that system and says, these aren't assets, these are great liabilities. These are not things to be treasured, these are things to be thrown away and thrown away quickly. Verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. Notice his words. Paul counts these things as worthy to be discarded with prejudice, things that should be thrown away. In order for Paul to gain Christ, he must renounce his former privileges in Judaism. This change in perspective for Paul did not come about by his own reasoning or his own mental effort, but rather it came about because of revelation of God as God revealed Jesus Christ to Paul. This revelation was not achieved by Paul's search. If you remember Paul's experience, Paul was on the way to Damascus. He was riding on his way with letters to arrest people. These letters were Descriptions of authority and power from the Sanhedrin, and he was going to take Christians and throw them into jails. Remember, Paul was the one holding the coats at the meeting where they killed Stephen. This is who Paul was. And in the midst of his evil, in the midst of his working of trying to destroy the church, he was caught off guard and God revealed Jesus Christ to Paul. He stopped Paul dead in his tracks of rebellion and revealed 
Jesus Christ. And through that revelation, God then explained and exposed the gospel to Paul. And Paul renounced his works and adopted or accepted Jesus Christ in faith, in this sense that he was not seeking, but God was seeking him. The change in perspective which is necessary for Paul to count every former privilege as worthless is a, is a change that cannot be brought about by Paul, but only by the Holy Spirit. This is why we need the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. Is because not only can we not come to see Jesus Christ as precious, but we cannot also progress in the walk of being a Christian because our hearts and minds are set on, our affections are set on things that should be discarded compared to Jesus Christ. Christianity, therefore, is a radical indictment of man. Man is unable to repair his own inadequacies before God and can do nothing about his sin. Not only that, man is trapped as an idol maker in love with things that are detestable. That is what Paul does. He says, I consider them rubbish. That word is actually translated as uh, fecal excrement. He wants to communicate to them that these are things to be discarded and quickly. We don't allow excrement to stay around us. We get rid of it or we get away from it. That's what Paul is saying. And before Jesus Christ was revealed to Paul, Paul loved those things. That's what he's saying. I consider them as rubbish. They're loss. They're liabilities to me. I want to get rid of them. I've disavowed them. I no longer am going to trust in them. Only through faith in the death of, man, of the man Christ Jesus, therefore, can men become transformed and receive the righteousness of God. This is what the book of Romans tells us, that Abraham considered the promises of God, he believed in the promises of God, and God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. He counted Abraham's trust in God's promises as righteousness. He evaluated Abraham's obedience in the light of his faith and saw that it was a good work and not a work of the flesh. Being declared righteous by God through faith is merely a foundational reality upon which a thousand spiritual blessings are bestowed to the Christian. Through faith in God's promises, Paul not only repents from sin, but he gains Christ, Christ himself. He doesn't just escape from punishment under the law. He also achieves and receives Jesus Christ. The reason Paul has counted these things as worthless is for this end, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like them in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Only through faith in the promises of God can a believer have true communion with Jesus Christ. You see, we live in a world in which we do not see Jesus Christ exalted in the earth. We walk by faith. We do not see the kingdom of God reigning everywhere on the earth. There are small little pockets, like when the sun is breaking through on a cloudy day, little sunbeams of grace in which God by his spirit has transformed parts of culture. But for the most part, Jesus Christ is not 
honored as Lord everywhere. And therefore, as Christians, we only know Christ, we only commune with Christ by faith. Everything that a Christian does in the Christian walk, therefore, in trying to know Christ and apprehend him and experience him in their lives is done by faith. Further, only in knowing Christ can the share of his sufferings and becoming like him in his death seem glorious to a person. Do you see that Paul counts knowing Jesus Christ, sharing in his sufferings, and becoming like him in his death? Paul has put those on the assets column. Have you ever taken a a class in accounting? You have assets and you have liabilities and you have equity in the middle. And your assets and equities are supposed to, or I don't even remember. The point being, it's assets and equities. No, assets equals equities and liabilities. That's it. Thank you. Thank you, accounting students. Paul has put this terrible suffering to the natural man, the suffering of Christ, the suffering with Christ in the blessings column. That is a perspective which can only be brought about by the Holy Spirit. Unless the Spirit transforms you, you cannot see suffering on the behalf of Christ as something joyful. Count it all joy, brothers, when you face various trials. You've been counted worthy to suffer for the name. None of that is possible by the natural man. It takes the Spirit of God to renew one's mind so that those are not deficits or, or, or liabilities, but those are, are credits and those are joys. Finally, in Christ, we have the promise of eternal life, living with him. In this verse, when he says the, to uh, to attain the resurrection from the dead, Paul is not simply having in mind coming back to life again and living on this earth, but rather has, as a good, true Jew, he has the messianic understanding of the end of the age as being the time when God comes and dwells with his people forever. That is the capstone blessing and benefit for Christians. Not only do we renounce our former former privileges, not only do we gain Christ, not only are we counted for a time worthy to suffer with him, but we attain the resurrection from the dead and we live with Christ forever. That is a great and final blessing. Having touched the heights of this glorious hope, Paul then quickly dissuades the Philippians from thinking he is now boasting about Jesus Christ or boasting about his progress in Jesus Christ. Remember, he's just taken all of these things. I'm a, I'm a, a Jew circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. I did the persecution of the church as, as with regards to zeal. He takes all of those and sets them aside as rubbish, and now he is boasting about Jesus Christ himself, but he is not boasting about his progress in sanctification. He quickly warns the Philippians from thinking that Paul is a super apostle and he's perfect, but rather Paul graciously reveals his heart and soul to these Philippians so that they will think like he thinks. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this, that is to say he has not experienced some sort of twisting of the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. There were people at this time in the New Testament scriptures who taught that the resurrection from the dead was actually a spiritual thing only. 
that it's some sort of spiritual resurrection. And we know that that is not true from the the rest of the New Testament. Paul is saying, I have not already become perfect. I've not already attained this, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul again here reveals his thinking considering his life or concerning his life and the way that he understands his sanctification or the working out of his faith. Remember, in the prior chapter, he had told the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean cause your salvation. It means you call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ and you are, therefore, work it out. If the implication is you will live forever with God in holiness and happiness and joy, delighting in him, then allow that to inform the present. Don't be enslaved to former sins. Don't give yourself over to boasting in yourself, but rather adopt a mindset which considers your future and allows that to shape your destiny today. He says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work within you. And so here he's saying, I'm trying to do that. I'm forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward. Not only does Paul renounce his former self-righteousness, but he also refuses to rest upon his laurels. Have you heard that phrase, resting upon your laurels? That a laurel is a wreath or it's a garland, it's something that is made and given to those who win prizes. If you've ever seen like the Kentucky Derby, they have that big giant green thing of flowers, that's a a garland or a laurel or a wreath. Paul is saying, I am not resting upon yesterday's obedience and yesterday's success. I forget what lies behind and I'm moving forward. He did not fail to acknowledge the grace of God in producing zeal, knowledge, and effort in himself. We know this from the rest of his writings. Remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. He says and boasts in 1 Corinthians 15, I worked harder than any of the other apostles. And then he immediately says, But alas, it was not I, but the grace of God that was working within me. You see, it is spiritual false humility to refuse to acknowledge the small measures of sanctification in one's life. You should routinely give thanks to God that you are no longer enslaved to that sort of sin or no longer have that sort of moral deficiency. If you have made progress in walking out the gospel, you should give thanks to God for those things. And in fact, whatever you give thanks for usually tends to increase and to bless. And it, it, it causes the blessing of God to come upon it in a greater way. However, it is never the case in the Christian life that we can simply rest upon yesterday's obedience and success. By forgetting, he intends to not consider his efforts in prior days as the fullness of Christian obedience, nor to begin to trust in them, but rather to continue to work out his sanctification by the grace of God. This is very important for us, especially as young or old believers. Whether or not you are a new believer in Jesus Christ 
or you are a progress season believer in Jesus Christ, the temptation is great in any season of walk with the Lord to say, well, at least I'm not doing that anymore. I'm okay in this other area. I can tolerate that lack of zeal. I wasn't very kind there. That's okay. At least I'm not cheating or lying anymore. That's not at all the perspective of a Christian. Paul is saying, I forget what lies behind both the the curses and the blessings, both those things that I've caused in sin and also done right and good deeds and good works. I forget what lies behind and I look forward to the upward call of God. This goal that he speaks of in other translations called a mark is a line by which the Olympic runners, having crossed that line, would be considered to have completed the race. In God's providence yesterday, I watched a movie called You're the Greatest, Charlie Brown. And how many of you have seen this movie? Just a few. This is wonderful. I would encourage you, if you have small children, to watch this movie with them because there's an amazing lesson. Really, truly, I was caught off guard when I saw the end of the movie, having not seen it or not remembered the end of the story. Charlie Brown participates in the decathlon. And the decathlon, if you don't know, is 10 deca, decathlon 10 uh, things to do, 10, 10 things to, to achieve. It, there are 10 parts of the contest. And the last decathlon, the last part of the decathlon is a race. And Charlie Brown, uh, it's, it's shockingly bad how um, illogical this is. Charlie Brown, a very chubby young kid, the way that he's drew, drawn, he's winning the race. It's, he's going up against Snoopy, some other tall, skinny kid, I don't remember his name, and Marcy. And there's four people in this race, and Charlie Brown is in the lead. And he begins to hear all of the people praising him for being in the lead. And the most amazing thing, I think it's so profound that this is in this cartoon, he closes his eyes and starts to think, I might actually win the decathlon. I'm going to do great. I'm in the lead. I really am great. He closes his eyes, and instead of turning with the rest of the track, he just keeps on running in a straight race. (laughs) What I love about that movie is Charlie Brown always fails. In every story that is told of Charlie Brown, he usually fails. The reason he failed to win the race is because he closed his eyes and he thought he had won. And so... I take this to be a parable of what Paul is talking about here. If you close your eyes in the Christian walk and you think you're fine, you're about to be taken down by the enemy. That is exactly when you are the most spiritually, uh, the most, you are on the worst ground spiritually is when you begin to rest upon your progress in the gospel. The first one to cross this line is crowned with a wreath in the Olympic Games. But for the Christians, it is not the first one who crosses this line, but all indeed who cross that line who receive a crown of glory. We are told in four places in the New Testament that those who persevere will receive a crown. It is called different things. At one point, it is called a crown of righteousness. We talked about this last week. Do you remember? A crown of life. Do you want to be crowned with life? I don't fully understand what that means, but I want to be crowned with life. 
Jesus Christ himself is going to crown you. He is going to say your name in front of the Father and the angels for those who keep their eyes open and look forward to the finishing mark. It is a great danger if we close our eyes in the race. And so the point being that the Lord Jesus himself is that crown. It is knowing Jesus Christ forever and ever. What a wonderful privilege. Having now shown how he thinks, Paul then teaches his readers to imitate him. Verse 15, he says, let those of us who, th- who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. These, this is one of the most precious verses to me as a pastor. The reason why is because Paul exhibits a great amount of confidence in this verse. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. By implication, those who are not mature do not think this way. If you think you are a well-seasoned Christian and you've begun to make progress in the faith and your heart is beginning to trust upon your deeds in working out your sanctification or the moral reform of your character and soul, if that begins to be the object of your trust or the locus or the center of your trust, you are spiritually immature. Both for the saint who is on day one and the saint who is on day 10,000, whatever it may be in the life of a Christian, the perspective, the anchor of our soul is the work of Jesus Christ alone. And nothing at all in any way should we take assurance from our progress in the gospel. If that begins to be the locus or the center of our trust, we are near shipwreck. Why? Because we must keep our eyes on the upward call of God. This is what he says. Let us think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal those also. Those who desire to become mature should renounce trusting in their spiritual works and properly esteem and desire their reward. The great perspective change which needs to take place for those of us who wish to become mature in Jesus Christ is this, that we no longer measure how we're doing in the Christian life based upon when was the last time we knowingly sinned. There should be a progressive defeat of sin in the gospel. Sin should never be tolerated in a Christian's life. However, the anchor of my soul, my joy, my trust is not based upon how recently I've sinned, but rather how much at this moment am I clinging to Jesus Christ? Do I see him as precious? Do I see him as necessary? Am I aware of my hunger and thirst for him as my food and my drink? That is the measure of Christian maturity. It is whether my eyes are on Christ or whether my eyes are on myself. And as I said, this is such a wonderfully comforting passage because here Paul trusts that his readers, being truly saints, will be corrected by God as the Spirit applies the work of his teaching to them. Spirit should be capitalized in that sentence. The Holy Spirit, Paul is trusting to accomplish a change of mind. He will renew the minds of his hearers. Those who have progressed in spiritual understanding should not forget what they have heard and learned, but improve upon it by adding to their faith 
virtue. There's a whole litany of things in Second Peter 1, 5 through 11, that talks about the necessary building upon the foundation of faith. In the life of a believer, faith is the foundation. And unless that foundation is well laid, nothing can be added to it. But it is necessary that we make progress in the gospel. Nevertheless, that progress is not the substance. It's the effect, but it's not the cause. Therefore, Paul says, join in imitating me. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul's command to imitate him begins by thinking in the way that he thought. I want to go back to these verses in in just a second as we consider what he is supposed to do, saying count. Uh, Here in these verses, he is telling them to imitate him and think in the way he thinks. You see what he's doing? He's revealing to his hearers the way that he thinks, and then he's telling them, you should think like that. He's explaining his reasoning, the way that he counts things, and then says, you likewise should count your life in this exact same way. By counting his former privileges as worthless compared to Christ, Paul gains Christ. One of the great gains of membership in a healthy church is this, a benefit of having many godly examples. He says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. There are people within your church who hold to the example of the apostles. And oh, that there were many more of them. But your job as a Christian is to find those examples and to not only imitate what you see in the scriptures, but to look at the way that they're fleshing it out and try to obey and believe like they are doing so. Believers should pay close attention to those who exhibit wisdom in the Christian life and practice imitating them. This is not a call to imitate the flavors and preferences of Christians. It doesn't mean that you know a good Christian who likes jazz music and then you go out and get jazz CDs or MP3s. The point is not to imitate the peripheral things, but the center. You should learn what makes the spiritual leaders in your life. You should learn what makes their hearts tick. You should learn what grieves them. You should learn what moves them. You should learn their purpose and their way of life. And you should imitate it. And there should be godly examples in your life. If you have no one in your life who you consider to be a spiritual example or mentor, you are being greatly hindered in your life because you don't have a trajectory. You, you need godly examples in the scriptures, but you also need godly examples in the flesh. Because it's so easy for us as Christians to say, that was Paul. He got to see Jesus shining in glory on the road to Damascus. I haven't seen Jesus that way. I'm not accountable to that level of repentance and zeal. You need godly examples in the flesh because you need people around you who disarm the lies that you may tell yourself, I can't attain to that level of obedience. That's not humanly possible. These things are embellishments. 
You need people around you. And that is one of the great privileges and benefits of being a member in a healthy church. It is you are surrounded by godly examples of other human beings who live in similar circumstances to you who are laying it all down for Jesus Christ. That is the goal of a Christian church. That's the point of fellowship. It's to encourage one another in pursuing the cross of Christ. The chief imitation should be laying down one's life for the sake of their neighbors, both within the church and without. This self-sacrifice, therefore, is only possible by setting one's mind upon heavenly things. We saw this last week. If I'm concerned with the needs of others, who will be concerned with my needs? And then Paul launches into have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, which is yours. It's spiritually yours. Adopt this mindset. And then he goes on to describe that in Christ's incarnation and in his humiliation at the cross and in defeating death, he did all of those things for the prize of being crowned with life forevermore by the Father. So, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. The great Christian hope is not rooted in this life, but at the end of all things, that Christ will live, will raise us to life in great power, and we will live with him forever in glory. That is the great calling of the Christian life. It is not even simply progress and sanctification, defeating sin today. That is a wonderful privilege and benefit of being in Christ. As a new creation, we do see measurable progress in becoming more godly. But brothers and sisters, there will be sins that you war against till the day you die. Not sins that you tolerate till the day you die. There will be sins that you war against till the day you die. There will be temptations until the day you die. Nevertheless, Our great hope is not just deliverance from hell or deliverance from the pain of terrible circumstances that we subject ourselves to in our our own failures and, and folly. The great privilege of the gospel is the eternal life. Not just life forever, but life forever knowing the one who has lived forever. That is the great privilege of the gospel. It is that we will know Jesus Christ and at the resurrection we will be raised and given a body that is called glorious and wonderful. These sorts of things are too high for us to even comprehend or or fully apprehend, but we might know them. And the scriptures were given to us that they might elevate our perspective to where God is calling us to go. Let's close. Father, we ask that you would allow the call, the upward call to be compelling to us. We pray, Lord, that these privileges which are coming to all those who overcome, we pray that those privileges would be clear to us, that we would consider what they are, that we would meditate upon the excellencies that you have have destined for all those who are in Christ and that those things would become anchors for us. That in seeing fellowship forever with Jesus Christ, that that would become to us better than gold, better than wealth, better than power, better than even recognition among your saints, that that would become everything for us. That that would deliver us from 
not only adhering to those things which should be rejected, but also even resting upon our own obedience in the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would elevate our eyes, that we would think about and dwell upon and meditate upon what that crown will be for those who overcome. Lord, we thank you so much for this upward call. We thank you that you've not only snatched us out of death, you've made us alive, but you are going to crown us one day. Lord, we thank you so much. Who, who could even imagine what these things are, let alone rightly express the thanksgiving which is due to you for, for purposing them for us? Lord, we pray that you would seal these things in our heart by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.